So we're in the middle of uh, uh, the Lenten worship series that's going through the seven signs that uh, come about in the Gospel of John. Signs as in like these actions or statements that, that things that, that Jesus does or says to try to basically put his glory on display so that people know that he is the real deal, that he is the real deal Messiah, the one and only true Son who has come from the Father. And so uh, Gospel of John records seven of these. At the end of the Gospel, he says there's many more. There's so many more that Jesus has done during his life here. I'm only putting this many in for, for you all to believe and have uh, faith and have life, eternal life in his name. So we're going to look at those seven as a way just for us to be reminded of the real Jesus Christ. I know in a lot of ways our world can be full of such noise. Our lives can be full of such doubts and troubles and chaos that sometimes, even though we don't intentionally do it, sometimes we may forget. We may forget that He is the Christ and we are not and that we can place all of our fears and all of our troubles and we can put all of that on His feet, at His feet and on His shoulders and come to Him and find rest. And so that's what I hope this Lenten season, we just get that reminder that reminder of who Jesus is and how we can approach him, have faith in him, and trust him for being the one and only true son of the true father. Amen? All right, let's go home. That's basically about it. So So, uh, today we're going to look at the second sign. And as I thought about this, I thought about my dog, Lucy. Uh, Have any of you ever met my, my dog, Lucy? Anyone's couple? Yes, yes. Joy, I know you have. Joy Voorhees walked with us with Lucy when we actually finally had to put Lucy down just before uh, Caleb was born, actually. Joy, you are a saint. Everyone look at Joy and say, you're a saint. Yes, very good, yes. So, but my dog, Lucy, she's a golden retriever, and she was fantastic, and I, and I had her before I met Carrie, and, and then Carrie came into the picture, and she was great with Carrie, and then Clara, our daughter, came in the picture, and she was okay with, with Clara. Uh, never was mean to Clara, but was kind of like, what's this in, in our house here kind of thing, you know? But, um, but the thing about dogs and the thing about Lucy is that, um, you know, dogs have accidents and messes, do they not? It's always, always at an inopportune time. Like, you know, you've been gone all day and you want to come home and just relax and you walk into the house and as soon as you walk in the house, it hits you. Like, you know, Something's amiss in the house. Obviously, there was an accident or some sort of mess. And dogs don't like to have accidents or messes where they actually lay down. They like to have where they lay to be rather tidy. And in our house in Florida, the whole house, my friends, the whole house, except for one room, was all tile and laminate floor. Like places that it's easy to clean up such messes. Is that where Lucy made her mess? Oh, no. No, no, no. She went to the one room that had brand new carpeting in. And that's where she went and found her little spot, a little corner where she didn't have her nappy time. And that's where she would, she would have her accidents and messes. It was just a head scratcher of a moment. But now we have kids, my wife and I, and kids make a different kind of mess. I mean, they can make those kind of messes, but I'm thinking they, different messes, obviously. And the messes that our kids make, no, no boundaries. The mess can be everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's where they lay, where they play, where they eat. This just mess. It's toys. It's snack wrappers. How many of you have had kids, grandkids, or babysat kids that open up a snack and eat it and promptly drop the snack paper on the floor as if some magical thing is going to happen and the snack paper is going to go away? Anyone else experience such a thing, right? I walk in and I'm thinking, like, I don't know. Some magic's going to happen. 
And I often think, this is where we live, my children. This is where we live. Why would we want to live in a mess like this? And eventually the parent rampage comes about, and Terry, uh, Carrie, excuse me, Terry, Carrie, <laughs> Carrie goes on a tear. That's what that was. Carrie goes on a tear and rips through the house and, and just, we're going to clean it up from top to bottom. Thanks be to God for her. I'm usually a little bit more wrath of God, and I promptly go underneath the kitchen cabinet and pull out a trash bag. I'm like, today's the day. And I open it up, and I'm like, all the toys, we're going in. We don't need all these toys, obviously. Proves to be very effective. (laughs) Today, we enter into Jesus' house, my friends. Jesus' Father's house, to be exact. The place where we are supposed to experience, see, worship, and come into his presence. A place that should bring forth, because of our relationship with Jesus, good living, good habits, worshiping habits and posture. Habits that demonstrate our authentic hearts, hearts that want to know him more, to love him more, to worship him with our whole selves, just purely to do that and to recognize and keep holy his home and his name. And yet throughout Scripture and up to even present day, our day today, it's one of the first places that we profane and mess up, making a mess of its intent and a message to the world, and we continue on as if the mess isn't here, that we don't realize maybe the mess that we have made of his home. Our sign today will point to this wonderful truth, the truth of Jesus' Father's house and what he as the Son thinks of it. And we'll see Jesus go on a righteous rampage, if you will, uh, with a divine purpose and a profound impact for us all, and we'll receive a great promissory note of a sign a sign that not only glorifies the Father and the Son, but invites us in as active good residents in this home, in this big and wonderful house. There's an old uh, Christian contemporary song called Big House, if you've ever heard of it. And it's, it's the whole thing like, you know, where you can go to yard and play football and all sorts of, but the refrain is, come and go with me to my Father's house. Anyone have ever heard that song before? Yes, it's an oldie. If you haven't, YouTube it, my Father's house. That's what we're going to do today. Let's come and go with Jesus to our Father's house. Open up the books, uh, your Bibles, to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. If you're new here, there's Bibles on the back of the pew that you can take out. That's page 1054 to 1055. You can open up your phones and pull it up there on your latest Bible app if you like that. Or uh, you can just listen if you want. But we're going to read through this now sign. We're still in John chapter 2, last week we were in the first part of John chapter 2, where we saw the first sign that John records, which was the making of water into wine. And in that, we really got the, the glory of the Lord of Jesus just magnified, that he is the new wine, and that the wine that is abundant, and that it will never run out, and it is a wine that uh, communicates his grace. They were about to experience the shame of their wine running out. And he, in his grace-filled way, provides with them a party with the, the best wine ever. But it was a sign to say that the things of this world that we put our faith in that is not of Christ, they will run out. But through him and through his grace, we have life abundant. That's the first part of John chapter 2. And now we get a switch. We get another sign that comes in in John chapter 2, and he ventures up to the temple during the Passover feast. 
So let's read John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. My friends, hear now the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Money changers meaning that the temple had its own currency, and so you had to exchange your regular currency to get temple currency to order to buy temple things. And that's where, if you go to any of the other Gospels that talk about the cleansing of the temple, which the other Gospels put it a little bit later in Jesus' ministry, John brings it up here to the front because he's really trying to highlight these two signs, both the wedding in Cana and here, as, two, as a two-fold punch to understand who Jesus is. And so the money changers thing, if you go to the other Gospels, Jesus says, don't make my house a den of robbers. And the reason is, is that the, these money changers, they were, they were not the greatest. They were doing shifty things. And, and he sees all of this as he comes in and sees it all there. So he makes a whip of cords, verse 15, a whip of cords, and drove them all out of the temple. So just watch out, you know, just Jesus going on a righteous rampage, sheep and oxen. And he pours out the coins of money changers and overturns the tables, just flipping tables. Jesus goes from zero to ten here. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, where do you get off is basically what can you, how could you at least justify your righteousness to do these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But John records, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples then, then they remembered that he had said this at this time, cleaning the temple. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why did Jesus get so angry? Why did he get so mad? And you can see this as mad. He's mad. He's angry. He's disappointed. And I would say it's probably a disappointment filled with sorrow as well. It's probably most of those things mixed in. Why did he get so mad? The reason that I would offer to you is that it's because people weren't coming to his father's house. Remember, our, our point today is come and go with Jesus to our father's house. Well, here as he gets to his father's house, they're, they're not coming to his father's house to worship. They're not doing that. So you see, he comes into this, this inside the temple, and he comes across what looks like a bazaar, a mall, and it is a really bizarre scene to him. Money changing tables, sales, all happening within the actual temple, businesses carrying on their business. And the business that needed to happen was that the Jewish folks were coming on a pilgrimage. Anyone that didn't live in Jerusalem had a pilgrimage in to come to the temple for the Passover. And they had to bring with them or have with them the animals that were needed to make the sacrifice. And so instead of, of selling those things along the way, they decided to sell them right there where the immediate need is most. Of course, of course, then you can possibly, I don't know, I'm just going to look 
doesn't say here, I'm just going to know how humans work. You can jack up the price there on that, can't you, now? Now that you, you know, time's out, you need this animal sacrifice, and it's going to cost you, right? Their business needed to be conducted before that the Jews could enter the holy temple. So some may think, well, what's the harm and foul of this? Obviously, the Jewish pilgrims are coming, and they need to fill the prerequisites in order to worship correctly. But Jesus comes into the temple, it says. And he comes across this scene in the Gentile court. So if you understand the construction of the temple, there's different places and different places where people are allowed to be. And Gentiles who are of other nations, not of Jewish descent, not of the rightful family of the house of God, there was a court there for them to worship God, to experience the truth of the one true God. And what did the Jewish folks do with it? Well, they turned it into a house of business. They didn't care what was going on with the Gentiles and their access to God. They turned it into a place where they can conduct their business so that the real people can go into the next room and continue on with their worship. So Jesus gets mad at this for two reasons, social implications and worship implications. The social implications is that this once again magnifies the deep foundational racism that is in the Jewish mindset at this point in time. That those other people, those dirty other nations, could care less if they're worshiping God because maybe that worship isn't even that real. Is it even real? They're not even really worshiping the way that we can worship. So what does it matter? Let's just set up this mall and they can do it if they want, but it's not going to make a ding-dong bit of difference. These dirty, unclean people. But Jesus gets mad at them, not only because of how they are treating what would possibly be the least of these, but because they have put up a roadblock. They have put up roadblocks to stop anyone from experiencing the truth of God. And I stop here at that just for a moment and let it ring out. Because we can sit here and say, oh, you Jews. But my goodness, the church across the ages has been guilty of doing exactly that, of putting up roadblocks for people to experience the true worship of the Lord. Whatever those roadblocks may be, and there could be lots of them, there are a lot of people that have been hurt by church who say that they've come, they never felt welcomed, they, they were told they couldn't sit here because it's someone else's seat, or whatever it is. It happens. We're human. It happens. But we need to be mindful that we are not to put up roadblocks for anyone to experience the true truth of who Jesus is. So Jesus gets mad at that social implication, but then also gets mad at the worship implications that's happening here because inside this temple, they are doing business in God's house rather than worship. This is supposed to be a house of worship, not a house of business. They're taking care of their own security. They're taking care of their own needs rather than entering his courts with thanksgiving and praise. It's a direct image of what we talked about in Advent about the Sabbath, of how important the Sabbath is. That Sabbath is a time of resting from labor, of resting from work, and entrusting everything to God that he would provide just as he has shown time and time again. And now they're profaning that. They're in the business of making sure that they get their own both the sellers who are selling all this and also the people who are buying it because their focus is not on coming in with great thanksgiving. Their focus is in, I got to get this checklist right. 
in order for me to actually be able to access and worship God. It reminds me of what Ezekiel was warning against a couple weeks ago, where I said that Ezekiel laid down in front of them and, and blocked off, like the image of Jerusalem, blocked off the access of God to them because they were found guilty of profaning worship, of worshiping God and other gods in high places and mixing it all up and doing this in the sight of God with a total disregard for the temple and right worship. So Ezekiel gives them a sign, and he lays down, and he, he cuts them totally off. He's like, God says, if you're not coming to me, I'm not coming to you. Well, now we have the real true prophet who's giving a different sign. Jesus drives them all the way in dramatic fashion, and in some ways is demonstrating God's righteous wrath, because he is God. And profoundly and boldly proclaims, do not make my father's, that's, in, that's significant, my father's house, a house of trade, signifying something true about his father's house and his identity that he would say, my father. See, the significance of my father is that it is a specifically unique Messiah characteristic. He is the one and only begotten Son. The Greek word for begotten or one and only is monogenes. Mono being one or first genes of being born. He is the monogenes, the one and only begotten Son. He is not just some carpenter's son or some illegitimate child from a little Jewish girl. No, He is the one and only true Son of the true God. The only human on earth at this time that has the right and the authority to say, this is my father's house. God's house, his father's house is very good. And the invitation for us to enter and to come is also very good. To experience that goodness, to live in that goodness with right worship. And to trust him to be the one and only son. Oh, come to our father's house, my friends. Do not turn it into something that it is not. Do not make a mess of it in which we just survive and live on like my kids thinking something else or someone else will clean it up. So then what was the sign then that Jesus gave? If you read this, it's not as dramatic as wine to, uh, water to wine, right? We're, we're, we see a sign. We're hoping for there to be some sparks, some things happening, right? Something dramatic. And the only thing that's dramatic here is he drove people out and he said some things. So what's the sign? What, what, what is it that is here? See, a lot of commentators don't count this as a sign because it didn't have all of those things. But what he did was actually, as I said, he, he's stepping into the real true office of prophet. He is giving them a sign just like Ezekiel did, but his sign is a promissory note of what's to come. And how we know it was a sign is what John records from the disciples, that when the resurrection happened, they believed. They understood exactly what he just said here at this time. So what, 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 what's the sign? Not only the language of my father, but then he says, destroy the temple. Destroy the temple and I will raise it back up in three days. And even though the Jewish folks didn't understand what that was, you see, they said, what do you mean? How do you, how do you destroy this temple? It's 46 years that it took us to build this thing. It's huge. It's wonderful. You are going to destroy it and then have the bold audacity to say in three days you alone are going to build it back up again? They totally miss what it is that he's saying. 
I will raise it up in three days, John records, having been a disciple and then putting it all together, that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And this is the sign. It's a sign not like any others, but this is the sign. Three days, he will raise that temple back again, the temple being his body. The Jews are so lost in themselves. They have turned what was supposed to be access to the one true God. You see, the temple is the place where they can worship and have access to the Lord. And they've turned that into a self-serving, self-validating idol. They don't trust that worship alone is enough and now have fooled themselves into thinking that what they're doing is good, is good and righteous living. The sign reveals Jesus' glory only after the cross. It's the disciples who put it together and they realize in the midst of the commotion of what Jesus is doing, they realize two things. First, they realize Old Testament prophecy. They are reminded that the zeal of the Lord's house will consume him. That comes from Psalm 69. That comes right to their minds immediately. And then after the cross, they realize that he, what he has said here about raising up in three days, he's talking about his body. They realize Old Testament scripture, old prophecies, old promises, and they realize that Jesus now has the authority to reveal the new things that God is doing. In that, in Jesus, we see a great marriage and a great synergy of the old and the new, the old coming to fruition and coming to fulfillment and the new being established. And the only one that can do that is God himself. He's the only one that can do that. And the other significance about Jesus saying that the temple is his body, it's to get us to see that he is not contained in these bricks and mortar buildings that we have built. He's not contained in here at all. It's found, his person, it's found in him the one and only Son. No more Gentile courts, Jewish courts, or a curtain that separates, but full access to the Father through the glorified Son. Come to me, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. How does the sign bring glory to him? Is that he is able to stand and fulfill the old and the new with great authority and say, you can come and have access to the Father through me. It's no longer a veiled mystery. It's no longer a distant God. It's no longer Ezekiel's sign of being completely cut off. No, now you have this Jesus who takes the cross and dies and raises his body back up. And so see his arms stretched out, not as a blocking, but as a bridge. Whereas Ezekiel blocked, Christ bridges. And he bridges us from our old sin-dead lives who make messes of everything to the house of the Lord that is found in him where you can have full access and presence and, and, and experience the true worship of the Lord. It is a very, very good house, and he calls us into it. And so what are the implications for us, my friends, as we look at this? As we look at that simple just statement that is pointing to a for future for them that we now know, what is the implications for us? What are we supposed to take from this? What is our self-reflection moment? Is our hope and our assurance, my friends, found in this building? Is our hope and our assurance 
found in the success of our programs and our ministries? Is our hope and our assurance and our access to the Father found in our worship styles? In the pastor, oh Lord, I hope not. Look, you all should have laughed at that because now not just agreed with me on that so quickly. Have we turned our place of worship, and not only just us, just the church in general, into a house of business, of transactional works versus transformational worship? Have we put up roadblocks and hindrances to others experiencing Christ and the good worship of the Lord? Do we expect outsiders to get right with our desires and traditions? Oh, meddling. In order to be welcomed here. Do we trust the real Christ? To not need us to do anything to enhance worship, but just to simply be worshiping the Lord and let that be the thing that 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 draws people in. You see, if the wedding in Cana was about God's grace found in Christ, this sign here is about the trust that we can have in the one and only true Son of the Lord, who has the authority to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies and promises and establish the new. Grace and trust found in Him. O come to Him, my friends. Whenever two or more are gathered, the scripture says he is there. We are united in the fellowship of believers as the body of Christ. And this building and this location that we are in, it's just a building and location. Is it holy ground? Yes, because two or more are gathered here and he's moving in this place. But can we trust Christ to just be Jesus, to draw him in and to move people in this place, move in their hearts without us trying to add things to it? The place of worship to the Lord has expanded beyond the central location. When the disciples were sent out, my friends, when they were sent out after Jesus had risen and gives them all, it says, by all authority I send you out, it is no longer centralized in the temple, worship of him. It is now spread out, and it is no longer Gentiles, Jews, but it is everybody. Everyone can come to him. Everyone can worship him solely, not in a building. They didn't have organs, they didn't have pianos, they didn't have hymn books, and those are all wonderful things. Susan Rose is one of the best organists I have ever heard, and I'm not just saying that. But Susan, if we turned you into an idol, would you stand for that? Exactly. These are great tools and instruments that we use to express our love. But if there was a day where all of that was stripped away, could we still be Bethel? Could we still be a community here that worships authentically and fully and not wrings our hands and think, oh, that was just awful? Can we do that? If we can't, if we struggle with that, we maybe are making this place an idol and mistaking it for actual worship. Jesus says, come to me. He says, I will raise my body. I will raise this temple in three days. Therefore, let's use these things. Let's use them as blessings and tools to magnify who he is and not how great we are. Oh, come to my father's house. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your sign and your hard teachings. 
and how that they can transcend over time. And maybe it's because although you are timeless, so is sin. Sin just spans the generations. And we often turn a blind eye to it and, and forget and think it won't happen to us or that was them, that was then, this is now. Lord, humble us. Humble us. Humble our hearts to really and truly trust and worship you for who you are. To not try to dress it up. To not try to add things to it in order to make people come, but to just simply worship and to love others in the way that you have loved us. That is how people will know that we are your followers. That is how people will know to come. Remind us of this, O Lord. Let the power go out. Let the organ fall silent. Remind us of this, O Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christ always on always living in me. Oh, my friends, we are promised through the Holy Spirit that he makes his residence in us. We are the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. You can go and carry the church wherever you go, being a fellowship of believers who loves and serves the Lord for his purposes so that he would be known. Go and do that. Share that with others. Love them in the way that he has loved you and see how it makes a difference. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. Have a wonderful day, everyone.